Ladies and gentlemen and other fellow humans, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Lower Decks, Prodigy, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by today's panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, Rachel Clow. Hey! Tyler Monaghan. <laughs> hey, always excited to be here. I was excited to see what weird thing is going to happen with the intro music. <laughs> and the spectacular, the sensational Cicero Holmes. Oh, once upon once upon a time, I can't even speak. I'm <laughs> I'm so I'm so flustered and flummoxed by by intro shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. It's optional for podcasting. <laughs> little 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 weird today sorry about that um it might actually it's weird because so for people who don't know we use the zencaster platform to record this show so i can actually lay down the audio tracks live in order to simplify the editing process but sometimes zencaster chooses to do things with the audio and make it sound ways that it's not supposed to sound but then I will process the episode and it'll sound totally fine. So we'll see what happens. A kind of a roll of the dice. Um, but it just, just keeps things exciting. That's all. Right. Um, well, apologies for coming to you with this recap of episode eight of strange new world. So late, we know that the season has been over for a while, but we all thought that this show still deserves breakdowns on a per episode basis been a bit of a whirlwind on our end scheduling wise and sorry about that but we are thrilled to be back and talk more trek with you so just so you're aware the plan is going to be for us to finish up the season of this show with per episode recaps first two of which were um behind on uh recording of course but we're planning on recording them both right now and we'll all be back to talk the season finale very soon and from there we'll probably talk about the news that came out of San Diego Comic-Con at some point, And then by then, conceivably, we should be ready for Lower Decks Season 2, which is coming up very soon. We're right at the tail end of July. And that Isn't season- it Lower Decks Season 3? Oh my God, you're right. I can't believe I said that. Yes, Lower yeah. Decks Season 3. I was caught in a time warp there for a second. You're right. But, uh, apologies. Badgie will like to help you with that. He would. <laughs> oh, I, I sense the guardian around here somewhere. But um, <laughs> before we jump into it, we do have to check in with our panelists. Um, and Ty, before you said that we were your support group or and your... Uh, we, we I were, take it back. We, <laughs> we're going to keep you on task on a TOS rewatch, uh, any progress in the time so, that we've been? So what you're saying is this is really your fault. No, I haven't made it. No, I haven't made any progress. Um, yeah, let's put together a plan, uh, a plan of action. Uh, you know what? What we did do though is um, my wife and I decided let's intersperse the original series films with our well with my watching of the original series rather than like trying to watch the whole original series and then watch a bunch of the, the movies okay um so we did do yet another very out of order thing which is watch the next star trek film on the list which was uh wrath of khan yeah. um so you know watching that before uh the tos episode of space seed right that, that he's in uh <laughs> we did that um so it's like you know there's this very dramatic moment in the film where everyone's like holy cow it's him 
you know and it's like <laughs> like yeah okay i guess it is it's got nice hair um we, you know i don't know how much we want to talk about that movie uh you know we enjoyed it but we, we thought it like uh i think both of us sort of agreed like it felt like a better overall film and just like a little tighter and and like better put together maybe than the motion picture um but it also felt a little less um just like unique and felt like it had a little less character and felt like a little more of a generic uh kind of hollywood blockbuster to us and and like we both ended the movie and said like that was good but we liked the motion picture better uh, yeah so, see, for whatever that's worth saying that you did like the motion picture quite a lot so i was going to be interested to see how you reacted to Wrath of Khan. And now I'll be interested to see how you react to Space Seed, having seen Wrath of Khan already. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that should be interesting. You, you certainly have to... Uh, conceivably, before we get to the season finale, you should maybe just skip ahead if you're not there and watch Balance of Terror. Um, I would highly recommend that. Um, okay. Yeah. So just next time we talk about it. Wait, why? Is that the, is that the Gorn one? or Balance of Terror? It is Why not- is that... Uh- it will become. I assume you've seen the season okay. finale already. It'll be. It'll become clear. And if it's not, okay. then then we can talk. Uh, <laughs> okay. But um, so I, just, right. I just. I just. I just want to say that I. I also watched Wrath of Khan before watching the TOS episode, um, and I. I. I think your assessment is is spot on, Ty. With. You know, like the motion picture felt more like Star Trekky, right? Like it felt more like what you want Star Trek to feel like. And, and Wrath of Khan felt like, like an action film. Like it felt like a summer blockbuster um, set in the Star Trek universe. I, and, I just think when you have a straightforward super villain, it, you know, that's right. something that is not, to me is not necessarily when star trek is at its best or feels right. the most like trek um yes. and it lends itself to a lot of you know more traditional film tropes yeah. and stuff yeah. uh, that feel more like i said just kind of standard hollywood blockbuster kind of kind of thing and yeah and I, I think to that point that is that is what i think made that movie a success was was the fact that it was for 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 in the most reductive way more accessible to mass audiences um Wrath of Khan was over over yeah. the motion picture I will say they clearly decided hey that scene in the motion picture where Kirk is getting uh shuttled to the enterprise and there's just like the big let's introduce the ship with a bunch yeah. of exterior shots while Kirk flies around in a shuttle they decided that wasn't broke. We're not going to fix it. We're going to do basically that exact same sequence in Wrath of God, which I thought was pretty you funny. Know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because pretty much every movie and series up through Voyager, up through the end of Voyager, owes quite a debt to the motion picture because they splurged a lot on the construction of sets for the first film sets, which were continuously reused until the mm-hmm. end of Voyager, at least um, like the, the engineering set was repainted and reorganized quite a lot. A lot of the corridors were used up through the, the end of Voyager. And certainly you can see 
the enterprise corridors in the motion picture um, just as a different color throughout the entire run of the next generation. Um, mm-hmm. They, they stretched that budget. And uh, by the time wrath of Khan came out, it was actually a movie that was handled by the television division of Paramount. So it was a pretty common practice for several TOS movies to reuse visual effects shots. And there are several from the motion picture that are in the wrath of Khan, including a couple from space doc. So portions of that scene, yes, they did appear again. Um, but you know, I, uh, I think you guys are being a little harsh on it. Um, harsh on, wrath on the wrath of Khan. Of Khan. Just because look, I don't necessarily disagree with anything that you're saying, um, because it is, it certainly took things in a bit of a different direction but it was also a more truthful one than arguably something like the 2009 film did because the core component of interpersonal relationship was very intact. And one of the things that continuously fascinates me about the wrath of Khan, which eschews a lot of what you expect from blockbusters, especially these days is that it leaned into the ages of the performers and of the characters. Like these are Kirk wrestles with the fact that he's becoming an older man throughout the entirety of that movie. And it's never played in a way that is uh, denigrating or that looks down on him. He has to come to grips with the fact that he's older and he has to come to grips with a loss that has never touched him in the same way as the loss of his friend at the end of that film. Right. So I don't, I don't disagree that in terms of like straight sci-fi, the motion picture takes it handily, but in terms of like personal exploration of my favorite characters in the franchise, the wrath of Khan, uh, stands kind of in a class all its own, as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. I see where you guys are coming. I mean, it's coming back to theaters in a couple of months. I've seen it in the theater before. Probably going to go again. Oh yeah, I like I I I don't know maybe you know maybe it came across this way, but but I I, I just want to clarify I absolutely adore this film, <laughs> I love it. Um, but what but you know it's the thing about this film is that it is more it is definitely more a not necessarily you know paint by numbers or any any kind of formulaic uh pejorative that you would use for 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 a hollywood movie but but it was more accessible to people and that was great for the franchise right it was great for those actors it was great for uh like were it not for wrath of khan we wouldn't have gotten you know none of of what we got after after that would be you know if wrath of khan flops there's no tng yeah Right. There's there's no anything. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, it's probably not this podcast, right, because <laughs> there, there doesn't you know, there isn't any more Star Trek after that. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it 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 definitely it definitely did what it needed to do. Um, it's just that, like, when you look back, like, I think instead of taking away from wrath of Khan, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is potentially add to the motion picture, right? Like that when you sit back and, and, and you look at uh, from a, from a historical context and you look back at, at, 
at the motion picture, you're like, oh man, yeah, like this is the this is the movie that like when you're when you're done with it, you're asking the questions, right? Like I I mean that's what I think when we were talking about our our theater review, I said that it was it was not a movie, it was a film, right? Sure. Like it was a motion it was, picture. Yeah, it was a motion picture. Um in in yeah, in the truest sense of the word. And and like uh Wrath of Khan was a was a was a blockbuster film, right? And well and I, you know, I don't that, feel that so was Avengers Endgame. Right, yeah. And I don't feel an overabundance of need to necessarily defend Wrath of Khan because as all of you guys know, it is most often cited as people's favorite Star Trek film. Right. Like yeah. It is not mine. I don't know if I don't it's probably not anybody on this panels, but most people tend to prefer the wrath of Khan. Sure. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it, look, everybody has their own personal preferences. Um, you know, the submarine combat of wrath of Khan is something that I think is still one of the most fascinating things about it. But I, I wouldn't even presume to challenge the idea of going to bat for the motion picture. Cause I think it deserves it. Right. It's a little too commonly overlooked. Rachel, do you, what is your general, perspective on the wrath of Khan. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. My very cold take is that I like the wrath of Khan better than the motion picture. Okay. I don't All like right. <laughs> Sure. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's easier to watch and uh, you know has less you know. There is no part of the wrath of Khan that I have to mute because it's uh, it, it the blood curdling scream in the motion picture for the transporter accident is still something I mute. Like it is still so unsettling to me. And the, the earwig in wrath of Khan doesn't bug me nearly as much. Mm. Not by a long shot. How <laughs> come Chekhov was just like, fine. Yeah. Like, how it, come it, the, it, the slug it, just like, was like, Oh, you guys won, I guess I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah. Messed up Paul. We were like, man. Oh, Chekhov dies in this movie. And then it was like, Oh no, I guess he does it. And then we were like, Oh, Spock dies in this movie. And then we like looked at the next film title on Paramount plus. And we're like, Oh no, I guess he, I guess not. Well, well, he died in that film. Right. But <laughs> And that's what kept Nicholas Meyer from coming back for Star Trek three is that I don't, he said, you watch an interview, it goes, I don't do resurrections Mm. in that very like defined kind of draw that he has. I I love that man. I think (laughs) he did direct my favorite Star Trek movie in Star Trek six, but I still think once you get to search for Spock, I'll be interested in your take because I think that movie gets a little too much hate as well. Mm. Mm. Including from also, President Ronald Reagan. He did not like that movie. So I'm just immediately like, well, screw you, Reagan. It's great. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now we're talking. Yeah. Screw you, Gipper. It's on my top 10 list. <laughs> right. I also didn't know. I, I had no idea Kirstie Alley was in that movie. Uh, oh, yeah. Very, you know, just 100% forgettable performance in my opinion. Say goodbye to her. She was there. Yeah. Savick is in Star Trek 3 and it's not Kirstie Alley. So yeah. Say, say okay. They were they were on to something. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah and i didn't like you know i was just trying to uh contextualize like my reaction to the movie i'm not really yeah, particularly yeah. interested in like uh ranking but i will say like it does a, a lot of what you highlighted as the positives of the movie chris make sense that they wouldn't resonate as much with me somebody for whom those characters are sure yeah not as deeply right. rooted you know uh right. when i when i think of spock i picture ethan peck 
Right. Right. Well, and also too, just this is the last thing I'll say about Wrath of Khan. The Shatnerian yes. components of of the performance as Kirk are minimized because one of Nicholas Meyer's tactics in directing William Shatner was in doing so many takes that by the end of the time he would be out of energy. So <laughs> what you get is this kind of weary performance that works incredibly well for the movie. Right. And that totally fits with, yeah. Yeah, and it diminishes some of Shatner's, let's say, impulses, which were on display over the last week again. So yes. um, I'll, just, yes. I'll just leave it at that. Wow, uh, that makes so much sense. I did think he he seemed so just like, yeah, like de- like defeated almost. Like, sure, you know? Yeah, because he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And That's a great Shatner. little... Yeah, it's a bit. So, yeah, it's 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 funny to imagine. Well, Cicero, we didn't even ask you what you've been up to. So, uh, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, really so, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. It was it was uh, somewhat as interesting as as the Rathicon, uh not Star Trek related, but what quasi Star Trek related. Uh, close closest thing to Star Trek has been uh, continuing with the my season three watch of the Orville, now called right. the Orville colon New Horizons. Um, if if you guys aren't watching the Orville, right? Uh, they're doing they're doing. We're about to talk about great allegorical stories, right? Um, coming out of Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. We've been, we've been kind of talking about that already, and we'll be talking about that in this episode. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if anybody is doing it better than than the Orville right mm. now. Um, they are putting together brilliant, brilliant allegorical, like incredible sci-fi stories, right? Like when, when great sci-fi, great Star Trek, great, uh, um, uh, poignant storytelling is when you can use these allegories to point a mirror back at ourselves and back at our society and really start to have those conversations, those tough conversations about who we are as a people. And uh, the Orville has done that while still cracking jokes and have also done like philosophical types of great sci-fi stories while still cracking really funny jokes. It has been brilliant. I like I I really can't say enough about it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we um we haven't started the season yet. I think we were going to wait for it to be done and honestly, I thought it was going to be done by now. Otherwise, one more week probably no, one more week. Okay. We'll we'll power through it probably. I mean, we like we really enjoyed the first two seasons, so there's no reason for us not to watch it and then we'll probably have to talk about it on this show. Uh, primarily because of Cicero's glowing endorsement. Um, and it's a good show. I don't think any of us have tried to downplay or denigrate Seth MacFarlane's work in the realm of science fiction. And he's a well-documented Star Trek fan. So uh, all, all good over here. In terms of us, uh, we've just been we we've been busy, right? Uh, we went to – well. I had a business trip in Baltimore, and then a few days later, we went to California. Nice. Uh, we took Esri on an airplane. It was the first time she's on an airplane since uh, she was a little baby. Um, we gave her wireless Bluetooth headphones. It had mini mouse ears and a bow on it, and uh, worked through a flight from Seattle to Oakland, and then Oakland to Burbank, and then another hour and a half drive up into the Tehachapi Mountains, and she was a champ. So... 
That was wow. fun. Um, the topographical features of driving in the Southern California desert uh, certainly reminded me of the Vasquez rocks. That's about as close as the the Star Trek comparison. Well, where did they Where did they film Vasquez rocks? Where is that? They're, they're in California. It's, they're they're closer yeah. to L.A. I think. Okay. Um, and we weren't really near Los Angeles proper when we were in California. We were closer to, uh, well, Tatchby Mountains are in Kern County, um, and close to where I was born in Bakersfield, but uh, born at the bottom of a basin in a in a heat trap. <laughs> no offense to anybody who might be listening from Bakersfield. Best ice cream in the world is in Bakersfield, oh, but. Okay. Um, because I just know, <laughs> all right, I know it. But did I miss anything? Is there anything you wanted to add? I don't remember when the last time we recorded was. We may have been on another vacation as well, depending on. Oh yeah, I think we were. Yeah, we went to Leavenworth, which fashions itself as sort of a Bavarian village in Washington State. Uh, you, you did some time. Is that where Fort Le- Leavenworth is? The prison? Is there a prison? I don't know. I don't. Um, it's Fort Leavenworth. That's someplace else. I guess it, it must be. be. Yeah. Else. It doesn't yeah. seem we should like probably it. stick to our areas of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> Leavenworth Prison. It's is where, where is that? In Leavenworth. It's, oh no! It's, I mean, it's, oh, it's in Kansas City. Okay. Yeah. Leavenworth, Kansas City. It's But no, 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 no. Not That's that pretty much the, the ex- not, not enough Star Trek for my liking. Um, I did <laughs> tune into the stuff from Comic-Con, which we'll save for another discussion because there's a lot to unpack there. But why don't we move along because, uh, you know, we got a couple episodes to talk about. So let's start off our discussion for episode eight of Star Trek Strange New World season one, The Elysian Kingdom. And I deleted the music track, so I'll put that in later. <laughs> just be like when I think I'm gonna be able to just like let this ride and just like publish it, then something has to happen. Um, in fact, I'm, just before we move ahead, I'm gonna load it in right now because that is oh, it's just one of those. There we go. Won't have it for the next one. Okay. So, as we've done in previous episode discussions, we're going to uh, to move through the plot very quickly. Um, our discussion is going to be based on probably about four different bullet points that uh, break the episode up. And this is sourced, of course, from the wonderful editors over at Wikipedia who have provided these very uh, svelte episode uh, recaps for, of, of each of the plots. So, let's begin. The Enterprise is surveying a nebula when its warp drive fails, causing the crew to black out. Dr. Mabinga awakens to find the Enterprise's interior dressed as the high fantasy setting of his daughter Rukia's favorite book, with the crew unknowingly portraying its characters. So um, things get off to a pretty wacky start in this episode, although one thing that I will say is that I feel like the beginning of the episode does a pretty good job of telegraphing what the end is going to look like, at least in terms of what it's aiming to do on the emotional front. 
but um, it doesn't take anybody long to really see uh, that this the the tone overall of this episode is going to be far lighter for the most part than a lot of the other episodes that we've seen. Rachel, I'd like to throw it to you first. I mean, as someone who is so familiar with some of the shenanigansy episodes of Star Trek, when you saw that this is where it was going, were you pleased? Did you think it was out of place? What did you make of the setup for this one? I was pleased. Uh, I like the shenanigans episodes more than most people. Oh. Um, so I thought it was, I was looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I also like a more comedic episode now and then. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Cicero, for you, when you saw how this episode was going to go, but also too, that, um, we were going to get a little bit more time with, uh, with Dr. Mabinga for this one. Um, how did you feel about the tone and how did you feel about him as the guy to, uh, to, to take us through this jaunt in another world? Uh, well, I mean, I think the previously on, uh, you know, I love those, but at the same time, right? Like they do, they do too much foreshadowing. I think, especially when, like when they, when you have a show where it's an ensemble cast, but they've, they've been doing a pretty good job of uh, giving, giving each episode a focus outside of the captain and, you know, and our, you know, our primary trio. Um so like knowing going in that it was going to focus on Mbenga and his daughter uh, really kind of, like you said, it kind of foreshadowed the ending a, a little um, for me, which, which I wasn't necessarily the happiest about, but I, but I love, I absolutely adore this cast. Uh, uh, so when you're giving me more, of something, you know, of something that I love, like I'm, I'm ready to do it. And these, this, this storytelling team and this cast has earned my trust. So whatever ride they want to take me on, I'm willing to, to ride it with them. And, and, you know, so far every ride they've taken me on, I've liked, I want to ride again. So, and this is no different. This was no different. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Ty, a couple of questions for you. What did you make of the beginning of this episode, but also too specifically when it comes to the characters within characters that we get to see. So that is, you know, Dr. Mabinga is perceived to be King Ridley. Uh, Lieutenant Ortegas is Adya, who seems to be kind of like a, a, a knight in defense of the King. Captain Pike is Sir Eamon Roth, who's the court Chamberlain. And he's got, uh, a very sort of entertaining disposition, I think. But what did you make uh, of both the setup here as well as um, the the character displacements for this episode? Yeah, it was interesting. Like, if this was my first ever Star Trek show I had ever watched, I don't know how I would react to this. But like, <laughs> you know, like the like them dressing up as like merry men or whatever and running around doing like you know detective stuff and like in, in uh, the Next Generation. Like those dumb episodes, the holodeck episodes have like a place in my heart. You know what I mean? And so like we just, this episode for Strange New Worlds came right after the Serene Squall, which was pretty serious. Um, And it's like the episode summary um, is like, 
the USS Enterprise uh, becomes stuck in a nebula that is home to an alien consciousness that traps the crew in a fairy tale. And the thumbnail is Mbenga in a crown. And I saw that and I was just like, I hope this is just like silly, you know, like I hope this is just like dumb, like in the tradition of like some of the silliest like TNG holodeck episodes and gosh darn it. If this episode didn't deliver like so quickly, like I think um, for my wife, Julia, what did it was Pike as like Sarath. Like she, she really loved him. I think for me, it wasn't until La'an showed up and I, I don't remember her character's yeah. name, but with her little dog, which is apparently like her dog in real life. Yeah. And it was just, uh. it was just so obvious, right. That they had given the cast not only permission, but that the cast was like, very happy to like take this permission and run with it to just like crank it up to 11. Right. And just like, just, just go totally just ham it up, you know? Um, and they really delivered. And like, I don't think like, like Ortega slash Adia's performance was like a little odd to me at stuff at times, but like, it sort of didn't matter. Like I was fine with overlooking some of that. Like there were some parts where like, to me, the fa- like they kept introducing these new characters. I'm like, Oh, there's another wizard. And it was sort of like, <laughs> at times it was sort of like a lot, but it was also like, you know, again, because I know that there's like a kind of like tradition in Star Trek of like these offbeat zany, silly episodes where you really have to just like buy in and go along with the silliness uh, that's what I like chose to do. And it was, it was super fun. Like I, I just had such a good time with this episode. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I mean, um, I also have quite a bit of affection for the, the zanier examples of TNG and even, you know, there are a few of those in TOS as well. In fact, um, the one that immediately comes to my mind, this situation isn't totally applicable, but there's an episode of TOS called shore leave where they don't realize it at the time, but they basically find themselves on a bit of an amusement park planet that has the technological capability to kill and resurrect crew members of the Enterprise. And I kind of I kind of just love that episode for its outright absurdity. This one is not as like blatantly absurdist as a lot of those other episodes from any of the other shows. Um, but that seems appropriate considering especially what it ends up going for. Um, But I'm totally with you in terms of like the license that the cast seemed to have uh, in terms of just like pushing the boundaries of, uh, of camp in a lot of respects. I mean, Mm -hmm. Anson Mount seemed like he had a total (laughs) blast on this. Right. So I heard that he went to clown college. Oh my gosh. At least took like physical comedy clown classes, not for this. (laughs) It's just a thing he does for fun or like to be a better actor or something. And I like what I heard that was on some podcast where they were discussing him in um, the multiverse of madness. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and I immediately thought of this episode because I was like, <laughs> Oh, that's where you can really see that where his, you know, his physicality is just yeah. so absurd and funny his expressions are on point his his, the rigidity that he puts into his back at certain times is 
totally played in a, in a physically comedic way, which I absolutely appreciate. Um, and then the way that, uh, that Dr. Mabinga comes into this is just like the, the infinite straight man is way more delightful in this considering how much everybody else is chewing the scenery. So I think there's just a lot of fun to be had here. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was a good portent of things to come over the next, uh, over the next hour, but let's move along with the plot. So chief engineer Hemmer is the only other crew member aware of the situation. Thanks to his telepathic abilities. And they discover that the nebula has its own consciousness comparable to a Boltzmann brain. They find Rukia and learn that the nebula had detected her loneliness and created the fantasy to entertain her. So the description kind of goes pretty far ahead because we do learn uh, a little bit more about how some of the other characters have been situated. You know, Nurse Chapel is uh, this sort of, uh, I don't know, like plant wizard, kind of like a alchemist kind of a right. character. Uh, Lady Audrey is her Mama name. Laon is Talia and appears to be lost in music only she can hear. Uh, I'm really glad to see the, the, the king telling him that Queen Nev and her crimson guard have invaded her kingdom, searching for a fantastical object called the Mercury Stone, which I guess in the story, uh, the king has as like a, a, a tool to defend himself and to defend his kingdom and his subjects. Um, but we also, of course, get to see how uh, Uhura and Spock shake out. Um, Spock being the wizard Pollux and Uhura being uh, Queen Nev, the nefarious man. Queen Nev. She, man, she could lock me up in a dungeon any day. <laughs> Good googly moogly. Oh, my goodness. She Whoa. almost seemed Whoa. like she was having the most fun. I was having the most fun. <laughs> it's Whoa. like it's, we're, we're getting from, from Ty and T'Pring to Cicero and Uhura here now. Uh, <laughs> well, not exclusively T'Pring. I mean, I, Fair. you know, Cicero just feel like it's mirror some of my own. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> or Rachel and Captain Pike, you know. Right. right, right. Uh, I did want to mention while we're on the topic of, uh, I guess cleavage is that the topic we could be on that dress <laughs> sure. the dress that uh, Laan slash Talia was wearing. I think we saw Cicero at. Um, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't, yeah. couldn't think of the word it's mission. Chicago, at the convention right. at the little Strange New Worlds kind of mini section where they had a bunch of right. uniforms. There was like a you know kind of not explained sparkly gown. And, right, uh, that's that was right. That. Yeah. That's fair enough. So, that's kind of a non sequitur, but there you go. Right, well, right, no, right. but it's it's cool that now you back can look cleavage. back on this and, and <laughs> realize that this is where it came from. But right. um, no, I mean, uh, really, the the setup here when it comes to Rukia, she is understandably played as a little bit clueless to the mayhem that this has all caused. Sure, um, but at the same time, too. She and Dr. Mabinga again provide a bit of a beating heart here. At this point in the episode, uh, Cicero, I'll go to you first. The way that it was setting up 
that Rukia was at the heart of this and Dr. Mabinga, obviously like his fatherly instinct for protection is kicking in, but also he doesn't really know what the hell is going on. Right. When you realize that this was like a Mabinga Rukia dynamic at the heart of this episode, did, did that change your perception of your watching experience at the moment? Or were you just, um, like, oh. you, you, I mean, it just, it just entered in a new phase, right? I, I kind of smelled what was happening um that 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 ultimately the way that he had to save his daughter was by letting her go and becoming part of this you know this nebula and um uh, so you know so i like i like i felt that part right like as as a as a person who who is uh parents to to adult children right like you um you want them to leave you, but you also don't want them to leave, right? You're you're eager for them to to go and and and, but but you but you want you know you always want them to hold you always want to hold them tight and you always want them to be your your little children. But you know part of that love is letting them go and 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 doing whatever it is that they can do to to live their lives. And so like that part, I, I really was, you know, I was empathizing with, with Mbenga really having to, to like rush through that decision. And, you know, and, and the stakes were obviously higher than, than your kid going off to college or coming back and, and, you know, getting a job. This was, this will allow my daughter to live. Uh, so, you know, that part I was, I was getting, I was preparing myself for, um, and they threw some twists in there that I didn't expect. Sure. Uh, what about Hammer for you? I mean, Hammer. Comes oh man, uh, listen, Hammer. Hammer is anytime Hammer's on the screen is the world is better for it, man. The world <laughs> is better for Hammer. Like he, oh, what? Just I l- absolutely adore that character. Um, and uh, you know, it's just great great character um and i i cherish every moment that he's on the screen because he it really does i don't know what it was about the character the way they they wrote him but but every scene is better because he's in it sure rachel what about you in terms of the use of hammer in this one is someone who is in on the joke so to speak um did you, what did you think Hammer brought to the table that maybe Dr. Mabinga didn't? I feel like he's kind of like the the data character of this crew <laughs> in this season where there are so many episodes of TNG where if Data wasn't on board, they'd all be dead. <laughs> um, and I feel like there... I, I can't think of another specific one, but this is one where it's like if Hammer wasn't here, like I don't know what would have happened because... He, uh, Spock is. I, I, way. I, I think. I think every episode that Hemmer's been in, you can make that. You could really make that case. Yeah, that I mean, they'd be dead without without Hemmer's in, interaction. Yeah, his I, intervention. The, the yeah. one with the like virus or whatever that was making everybody like need to be hot or need to see light. Yeah, did yeah. eventually get him, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like he's he's kind of like got that role. So, um yeah, I you know, I I echo Cicero's sentiments that he's great. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
Uh, Ty, for you, when it comes to um, the other characters coming into play, like Uhura and like Spock, um, is your attention mostly on these sort of extreme extrapolations of the other characters that we know that are displaced? Or is it on the the Hammer Mabinga team up uh, at the center of everything? Oh, yeah. I think for me, like, I totally am just focused on, like, you know, the Mbenga and, and Hammer, like, team. I, I, one of you mentioned a few minutes ago the, like, you know, because the, the others who are, like, overtaken by this whatever Nebula thing are, like, cranking up the hamminess so far that, like, Mbenga as the straight man works really well. And it's just, like, what a perfect, like, you know, partner, like uh, other straight man to have to hammer. And like when the two of them, <clears throat> there's like a, a scene where uh, that I think you'll actually talk about later, where the two of them are together in like a kind of a corridor watching this like battle play out basically um, between like Ortegas and some, some goons on um, Queen Nev's side. And like <clears throat> the two of them are just so calmly standing there and watching and like sort of discussing the situation and just completely impassively watching this like <laughs> battle with swords and bows and arrows like unfold right. right in front of them. And it was just such a great like uh, juxtaposition for me. And I think for me, just this whole episode, they did a really great job of like, you know, just when I started to be like, okay, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there are kind of a lot of characters here showing up with the fantasy thing. Like, I kind of like am ready to move this into like what's going on with the ship, you know, like let's figure out what's happening to this Star Trek crew, not to this like princess and wizard situation, right? And then, and then like pretty much right on cue, they start to sort of like drop pretty significant clues about you know, what is the Mercury Stone or is it who is the Mercury Stone or, you know, and, and like kind of for me that pacing and that like, you know, kind of transition, like you have this steep roller coaster like drop into the fairy tale world and then kind of like you're gradually like along with Mbenga kind of digging yourself out of that hole and figuring out where you are and looking around and, and seeing what's really going on. And for me, that whole like pacing and just like discovery flow uh like worked really well it made this like a unique episode for me that's one of the more more memorable ones uh of the season yeah yeah i agree and i I mean even more than than hammer i think that um bob's olusan moken who plays dr mabinga he just has such a degree of uh, such a high degree of relatability that he keeps the entire thing grounded throughout the entire runtime you know there's there's something about you know as, as positive a character as Captain Pike is, you know, he is still that very visible uh, alpha leader that, you know, not a toxic one, but he is still that kind of type A personality who you expect to take charge in those situations. That's not necessarily something that seems predominant with, with Dr. Mabinga. And um, the way that Olusan Moken plays that is just exceedingly charming to me. Because he keeps all of the stakes centered and grounded. And you could tell that he has this like sense of overriding concern for everybody. Um, but he's also just a really good problem solver and is trying to take things one step at a time. So uh, that's something that I really appreciate about this episode. Is um, you know that Dr. Mabinga keeps the center of gravity very, very firmly focused. And then on top of that, you have Hemmer, who is almost far more comedic in this episode, 
by being gruffer than he might be in any other episode, which is fun to think about. And it's just such a cool dynamic and it speaks to the strength of the way these characters are written. Cause we're, you know, this is eight episodes now that we're in and still it just seems like such a definitive Star Trek crew, which says a lot about the way the show is written. But um, let's move along. So we're getting close to the end here. So in addition to creating this fantasy for her, the sentient nebula also cured Rukia's disease, but this will not last if they leave the nebula. The nebula offers to preserve Rukia by converting her into an energy being within the nebula, which Mabinga reluctantly agrees to. He then sees a vision of Rukia as a grown woman, having experienced a life of adventures with the Nebula, whom she calls Deborah. Now, so this is where the episode takes a major turn. Um, and the, the summary, of course, doesn't do any semblance of justice to the weight of the performances, from particularly from Olusanmakan. But... Also, just like the the dynamic and the way that everything is framed. But I got to tell you, I don't know if I necessarily liked this resolution. Um, I get what they're going for. And I think that it's a valid discussion to have and a valid idea to communicate about letting go of a child. Um, especially at a time before you're ready to. Uh, that That does resonate certainly with me as a, the parent of a young child, but there was something about the, for, for some reason, the decision that he made took me out of the moment. Um, and I wasn't sure if the guy that I have spent eight episodes getting to know would have made that decision. There Granted, the writing probably set it up so that there wasn't really any other way for him to go. And like I said, again, I appreciate the idea that is in practice because of this. But the actual moment just kind of took me out of it. But, Rachel, you are a parent with me. How did, how did all of this come together for you? Was it more satisfying for you? I don't know that it was satisfying. I was kind of like blindsided by the emotional turn um that it took from being like so silly and funny into like being like oh that's really sad for him and but i guess that it's also like happy for her that she's not just in a pattern buffer anymore yeah. like that kind of seemed like it was a little sucky it's <laughs> <laughs> one way of putting it right and and then i was like and then in the middle of it she's like my friend's name is deborah <laughs> i just thought that was really funny like a, a funny name for like a um, non-corporeal space entity <laughs> Maybe something a kid would probably do right yeah sure sure i mean esri names things colors all the time yeah right, right now so you know she yeah. like calls her the like the camera that watches her at night. She calls it green. Because there's a little green light. It's, a yeah. green light. it's yeah. like green. <laughs> um, so I yeah, I mean it was just really sad for me because I I don't know, like I guess I don't imagine that 
you can have like a I don't know like this situation I, I think it's supposed to be like ah oh, it's bittersweet like she grew up and stuff but to me I'm just like that's horrifying like having your kid taken away from you right I, yeah yeah I don't know um but I get what they're going for and I wasn't like I don't think I was dissatisfied with it it mm. was just hard for me to like come to that like peace with it sure. that maybe you're supposed to well and i mean it's not like i wasn't swept up by it because i'm watching it and i'm like i don't know if i like this and i'm still going like oh, <laughs> my face. so that says something again about um the performances cicero you and i had a brief conversation around the time this episode aired and right. you alluded to um this being a little difficult for you to get through, did this land with you in the way that it was intended as a result? Or what, what are your feelings on it? Cause it seems like at least the way that you expressed to me in the moment, and now right. you've had some time to sit with it. Right. Sounded like they were complicated. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think it landed with me the way that it was intended to land. I, um, uh, and that was, you know, when you asked me the question before, I think I was kind of alluding to this, this particular moment. Um, and and in so much that like when you you know like you know when you're when you're a parent you're you know you're a parent of young kids your job is to protect them and to love them and to teach them and to guide them and to train them right um give them the lessons that you've learned over the years and help them fine tune and and start to become uh, young individuals. And eventually all of that work is towards something. And that something is them leaving your home and going off and doing their own thing. Right. And, and you have dreams and, and you have visions of, of who you believe your child can be. Um, but your child is going to be, could be that, or could be something completely different, could be so much more. And, and, you know, one of the joys of parent, you know, one of the pains of parenting is, is losing the ability to protect your child and just allowing them to, you know, make their own mistakes and, 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 you know, scrape their knees and have to kiss their own boo-boos. Um, but, but, in that pain is the joy of watching them become everything you hope that they could be and, 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 and far beyond anything that you could have dreamt. And uh, I think that's what Mbenga got to see. Right. So, so like, I guess my question to you, Chris, is what about the choice didn't resonate with you? Maybe resonate is the wrong word. I think what my issue was came from I didn't see how in the moment mm. making a decision that would require completely giving up your young child was completely justified. It's because – well, oh, I'm sorry. Please. No, please. Oh, yeah. So, well, I, to me, it made absolute sense, right? Okay. Your child's in pain. You know that you don't have the power, right? And you have exhausted all everything, right? And and just the week before, we we were at a place 
where his his hope was that he could let his daughter stay there because they could heal her. Um, and, and, you know, due to who they were, he couldn't. So here is a chance now again to save your daughter. And if it means, if it means that I don't get to see my child again, but my child gets to live, then I make that choice 10 times, 11 times out of 10. It's a no, it's a no brainer. And yeah, and I don't disagree with that. I guess what I would have preferred to see is a little bit more solid proof in the episode that this being had the complete and utter capability to make sure that she was going to be protected. Okay. I think it was more that you're, you're effectively choosing to leave your child permanently with someone that you just cannot know very well. Sure. And And I, I, yeah, I, I think they, well, from, from my perspective, I, I, I felt like they, um, showed, showed the entity, showed that Deborah was not only, not only, uh, a being capable of benevolence, but also, but, but, uh, also a being of, of some, some level of omnipotence, right. That, that she could, she, she could, and, you know, assigning a gender to Deborah, the, 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 the non-corporeal gas, um, but but was was able to stop this starship and and manipulate its entire crew just just because it it knew that there was a child stuck in the pattern buffer that was sad. Yeah. Right and and was able to retrieve that child from the patent buffer and and bring her into full form and hang out with her. Right, so I think from you know from from that perspective, I think Mbenga was like, all right, well if if you're also gonna say if you can do all of that and you say that you can cure my daughter, right? I I kind of believe you. Sure. Yeah. You I know think that's I think that's fair. Granted, I've only watched the episode once. I should sure. revisit it and see if it sticks with me at least right. a little bit differently. But right. Ty, how does all of this combine for you? This is the pivotal moment in the episode, really the the, the coup de gras, the, the go home moment. Um, did all yeah. of the pieces fit together for you? Yeah, Chris, like I, I think I kind of understand your point, Chris. That like to me, it was like a, it, it was kind of. Um, Interesting to see Mbenga like not agonize seemingly very much over the decision, right? And like to to seemingly arrive at it uh, fairly quickly and without a lot of like internal conflict. Um, I think I have watched the episode a couple of times now, and I think like it's just pretty obvious that they wanted the emotional kind of like arc, the shape of that arc to to have this snap at the end of the episode, right? Um, that if he had to draw that decision. It, it just would have been shaped differently. You know, they wanted the bulk of the episode to be spent with like the fun fairy tale stuff. And I think that's like a choice um, that, you know, we could definitely talk about it or agree with or disagree with to whatever extent. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me is like, um, Chris, you talked about as you were describing this and, and this might be wording from the summary that you uh, grabbed, but like 
um, the nebula offers to convert Rukia to energy, and then uh, Witch and Benga kind of reluctantly agrees to, right? And when you watch the episode, it is true that there does seem to be an understanding by the entity that Mbenga is the person that kind of needs to grant permission and needs to be the one to ultimately make the decision. But when the choice is offered, Mbenga never makes any decision at all. He completely turns to Rukia and he asks her. And when she decides what she wants to do, he just says, brave girl. And he says, I love you. And he doesn't even really say, yes, I agree this decision is fine or, or disagree with it. And he really puts it in his daughter's hands in, in, um, you know, I'm not a parent. Um, for me, it's been like troubling to imagine this child who's clearly at an age when she should be playing and having friends and learning to socialize and like, uh, being a little girl. And like, I just picture like it, it, it like, is horrifying to me to picture her life. Like she just wakes up and her dad's reading her a book and then she goes to sleep and she wakes up and her dad <laughs> continues reading the book where he left off to trick her and act like she was never, you know what I mean? Like it's like, it's to me, like that was the nightmare. And so I, I just like the reason I preface this with like, I don't have children is like, I get it. It's easy for me to say this. Right. Um, but to me, this was such an obvious act of, of like, selflessness and and when the nebula kind of like first makes the offer through hammer um i remember turning to julia my wife that i was watching with and saying like oh my gosh this is star trek so they're going to seriously consider this option right in a, in a lot of traditional sci-fi this would be like a no man you don't understand what makes us human nebula you know what i mean like right. we could never yeah. join our consciousness with you that would be taking away the essence of who we are you know and but this is Star Trek, right? And and there are strains of, yeah, humanity is beautiful and individuality is important. But there are also strains of like, life's weird and complicated. And like, there are different <laughs> ways of existing. And like, happiness might mean different things to different people or different beings, right? And And so, yeah, to me, it was like, this turn that the episode took at the end, like, it, it definitely left me emotionally shook. Um, but like, I, yeah, I really liked it. I think this, this like really cemented it as one of my, uh, I don't even want to use the word favorite, but like just most memorable episodes of the season, um, with like a, an arc that really will just kind of feels like it's kind of imprinted on me. Um, and so, yeah, to me, that choice at the end was like, it, it was huge. Um, it was momentous, but it was like selfless and like beautiful to watch you know and beautiful to see a show like make space for that decision to not seem like a uh you know like a homicide or something <laughs> well and i think uh, bringing up that he did give her the choice is important um i still chafed it a little bit because it's like this child cannot make such a monumental decision right. no totally i think there's still totally like uh yeah i think this is like a a rich like i you know i i wanted to sure. add that that texture rather than right. to try and like override what you were reacting which to, is right? much appreciated and i think it's very well taken i mean you're absolutely right star trek has a very rich lineage of uh of embracing the idea of not just like the the diversity that life comes with but also the combination of different forms of life to create new forms of life. You know, that's a very common theme uh, in the entirety of the franchise. And you could argue that this episode is another example of mm. that. 
-hmm. addition to just celebrating all of the different kinds of of existence that are conceivably possible, at least in the Star Trek universe. Rachel, how did this choice come out for you, uh, specifically when it comes to Rukia? And were you thinking of how you might make a similar decision if you were faced with it? You mean if I were Rukia? No, if you had to make a choice for Ezri, like this. Well, I mean, he... I like that he gave her the ultimate decision, which is good. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Cicero said, if it's between dying or living, but I don't get to see her again, I'm going to say living. <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't think the choice was wrong or mm-hmm. anything like that. The, well, the the thing that really wrecked me was Rakia coming back. Yeah. Sure. Right? Like that was that was a thing because it's again it's that it's that part of you, you guys as parents now like you you know that when you love your child completely your goal is right like you stop doing things for yourself your goal is to better your child's life and the ultimate the ultimate goal is for your child to be better than you in in every respect and and to see her as an adult and get that that confirmation that this was the right thing to do was everything from benga right was that like i yes i had to i had to give you up that i love you so much and i want to protect you so much that i give you up in order to do that and then you came back to me and you got to tell me about all these wonderful things like now i can die a happy man because i know that i did my job and my child is safe and happy and that is that was my goal the, the entire time. And that has been Mbenga's goal, right? Was to figure out a way to save his daughter. Yeah. And, and he did it and it was, yeah, I was done. I was done. You know, Oh yeah. I, I will just say like, not only was that confirmation that the decision was the right thing, but for me, that was like the kind of like TV shorthand that gave me permission to feel like, okay, that wasn't a crazy decision that Benka made, right? Because, like, we're sort of sitting there like, oh, wow, did that guy really just watch his daughter get, like, absorbed by these, like, light beams that came in through the window? And he's, like, he's, like, emotionally okay, right? But then he gets this experience, and, like, I got to imagine as a parent, right? Like picturing your fully grown daughter wearing like a cool sparkling spacesuit and being like, I'm, I'm doing great and I'm happy and I'm successful. It, I, like what more could you ever want? Right. right. And, and like, so that was like, yeah, this great validation for a banger, but also just me as a viewer, it was like that reassuring kind of like, okay, the person they're saying is a, a good guy is a good guy. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And I can feel good okay Deborah. about how this good went Deborah. down. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I didn't make the connection until literally just now, but this really, the way, especially the way that you guys are explaining it reminds me of a revision that was made in 2005 to the origin story of Superman. There was a story called Superman Birthright that was published between 2004 and 2005. It was like a 12 issue modernization of Superman's origin story uh, by written by Mark Wade with artwork by Lionel Francis Yu. 
And at the very end of it, um, Superman, after he makes himself known in Metropolis and he's wearing the suit and he's got the cape and everything, um, and everybody knows the, the, the most of the original details of the origin of Superman, he comes upon this Kryptonian technology that he has this like sense of dawning about what it means and what it can allow him to do. And he says something to it, but you don't see it. And then at the very end of the story, it flashes back to the final moments of the planet Krypton right after his parents have put him into a rocket ship and sent him off to the planet earth, hopefully to escape the terrible fate of the planet and his parents right after the rocket ship leaves hear this crackling and a monitor near them shows Superman. And he says, mother, father, I made it. Uh, his parents kiss as the uh, planet explodes. So dope. So this so is dope. very much like that. Yes. Um, and yeah, like the, I think you're right. Like the, the, um, the appearance of a fully grown Rukia uh that does you know elevate this obviously to illustrating that in this instance it was the correct decision so um yeah superman birthright great story by the way you should totally read it <laughs> um well that's pretty much it for the for the episode deborah releases the enterprise restoring its warp drive and interior design and no one other than dr mabinga is able to remember the fantasy so he tells number one about rukia's fate I'll, I'll be super quick, but I just have to say, I love that. I love that, right? That's like a staple of Star Trek that like somebody or, or a bunch of people went through something really, really horrible. And then they just kind of like carry about their, you know, go on with their duties. <laughs> and I love that Benga was just like, hey, look, like I've been through some stuff. And and the episode, the last shot of the episode is them talking about it. Like you got to talk things through. You got to have people that you can open up with. And this is a show that shows that. And I, I just love that. I'm sorry. I just had to mention that. No, of course. No, I think, it, I think the points well taken. Um, any other final thoughts on this episode before we, it was on? amazing. All it was right. amazing. Excellent. Well, let's move along to, uh, to a sort of time. Pedantic continuity time. <laughs> All right. Pedantic continuity time. So this one, I actually didn't realize at least one point of this um, until I read this before we came on to the recording. So uh, this also comes from the fine editors over at Memory Alpha. Thank you very much to everybody who contributed to, to the article for this episode for the continuity notes. So this episode is the first to establish Joseph as Dr. Mabinga's first name. The name Joseph was or originally listed in the script notes for Shoal, an unproduced episode of Star Trek, the original series, which would have been the introduction of the character. And this is the point. This episode establishes that Benny Russell was a real historical person in the show's timeline and not just a, fi a fictional identity induced in Benjamin Sisko by the prophets, a figment of his mind or a human from a parallel universe or an alternate reality. So this is a, ben, Benny Russell is listed as the author of the Elysian kingdom. And Benny Russell is the name that Benjamin Sisko assumes in very well-known DS9 episode, Far Beyond the Stars. It takes place in the 1950s that focuses on Benny's 
uh, difficulties as a science fiction writer of color. And uh, so Benny Russell, Star Trek canon uh, confirmed, which is kind of a cool Pretty call. Good. Um, Pretty good. In 2368, the USS Enterprise D also encountered a non-corporeal life form in a nebula that caused a little girl's fantasies to come true. That was TNG imaginary friend. A uh, little bit less. Um, a very different epic? kind of episode. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Deborah. Yeah. Uh, in 2370, the Enterprise D also encountered an alien cultural archive that, similarly to Deborah, caused data to take on the personalities of mythological figures and also transformed the interior of the Enterprise D to recreate the locations from the alien myths. That, of course, is the infamous season seven episode, Masks. <laughs> Uh, Brent Spiner's finest performance. <laughs> in another similar incident in 2369, the telepathic imprint of Sultana, who destroyed themselves in a power struggle, caused the crews of the IKS Tokat and Deep Space Nine to reenact the events that led to Sultana's destruction while also taking on the personas of the individuals involved in those events. That was the DS9 episode, Dramatis Persona. And then finally, when Zymira comes to the rescue of Dr. Mbinga and his group, she appears to strike down two crimson guards with arrows. Despite Mbinga stating his wish that no one gets seriously hurt, the guards appear to be fatally wounded. Given there is no reference to this later, Deborah presumably restored them to life when reality was restored. A later Enterprise mission also saw crew members apparently killed during a fantasy scenario to be restored to life. And that is, of course, the aforementioned TOS episode, Shore Leave. So, um, some fascinating continuity notes. I'm Most- just so glad you mentioned this last one because I was so concerned during the episode. Like, like Hever and Abenga are like, we better go take care of this before someone gets seriously hurt. And I'm like, aren't you standing over the like arrow riddled corpses of, of like your crewmates? So thank you for, for bringing yeah, this up. Can, yeah. Conceivably a reset there. Um, well, I think we can safely assume that that's the case. Uh, that everything was, you know, returned to position one, as it were. But um, that's everything, you know. And I think I think we kind of went around the world for this one. So, of course, thank you to our panel. Great discussion, as usual. But that is going to do it for episode number 83 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. And if you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show wherever you found it. It only takes a minute and let us know you wrote one and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles and feel free to send us questions through Twitter or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes and join us next time, which conceivably might be right now, as we discuss the next adventure of the Starship Enterprise. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. (laughs) 